let's turn to the Lord now in prayer. Lord, as we consider these weighty matters of idolatry and failure in the lives of your people, Lord, I pray that you would bless our time together this morning. Lord, that you would open our eyes to your plans and purposes. Lord, that you would reveal yourself through your word and guide us into all truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, <laughs> as the um, temperatures start drifting colder here, I see a number of you wearing heavier jackets coming in, and we realize you know, winter really is coming, uh, despite the warm weather we've been enjoying. I don't know about you, but it's sort of been that last mad scramble to get all the yard, final last yard cleanup finished, right? The last time to mow the lawn, the last time to clear out all the dead plants. We've been listening to the nonstop drone of leaf blowers as the landscaping crews work their way down uh, our street. Pretty much everything in our yard has now died, of course, in the backyard. All the leaves are gone, except for this one plant right here. Any of you guys have this? The Creeping Charlie. It's like everywhere in our yard, and it's just unstoppable. <laughs> it's the gift that keeps on giving. Uh, we pull it up, right? We pull it up, we go to sleep, we wake up the next day, and it's just multiplied. It's like it's mocking us with its presence. And weeds are the bane of our existence uh, as in, in our backyards. And the issue is you can't take a half-hearted approach to dealing with weeds, right? It's all or nothing because whether you spray or burn or dig them up, whatever it is, you, you cannot go half measure. They are so pernicious, right? So difficult to unseat once they take root. In the case of the Creeping Charlie, it's because they have this massive interconnected root system. So even if you pull up what you can see, it's what you can't see that then later produces new shoots. And of course, other weeds put out just millions of seeds that remain dormant until the weather improves again. So how does your yard give us a window into our study of Deuteronomy? Well, Last week, we looked at Deuteronomy 12 and the need to tear down all the places where foreign gods were worshipped so that the people would learn to worship God alone. But in a way, simply tearing down these shrines and altars and burning the Asherah poles and everything else, in a way, it's really no different than just yanking up the weeds in your yard. Because if you don't get all the roots, every last seed it will come back just as strong. And so this week in Deuteronomy chapter 13, Moses will encourage similarly drastic measures when it comes to rooting out idolatry. This short chapter, as we go through it, you'll see it divides into three uh, roughly equal sections describing three very similar situations with three very similar outcomes which is going to give us three related warnings for us today that we're going to explore. But the main point of the chapter as a whole is simply this. Take whatever measures are necessary 
to root out idolatry wherever it may hide. Let me start by reading the first section in chapter 13. If a prophet or dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of the prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God, who brought you out of the hand of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way, uh, to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now that last line there in this section becomes our first warning today, which is this, purge the evil from your midst so that you can serve the Lord. Now the situation that Moses presents to us here assumes a number of factors with which uh, maybe some of us are not uh, very familiar. First, he imagines a scenario where a prophet or a dreamer of dreams might present a sign or a wonder. Remember, even Pharaoh had court magicians who could provide uh, uh, signs and miracles and wonders. Dramatic events can hold powerful sway over people. And prophets and dreamers were common in the ancient Near East, so this wouldn't be unusual for them, even if it's more out of place for us today. Now, secondly, Moses notes in verse 2 that there might even be confirmation of that sign or wonder. Now, since the main role of a prophet or a dreamer was to speak on behalf of the gods or to otherwise predict the future, this kind of confirmation was pretty important. In fact, later texts on prophets and prophecies that we're going to see in Deuteronomy um, will make a big deal about this. The test of a true prophet is the accuracy of their foretelling abilities. Again, this is something we rarely have ever encounter today, but something very familiar for Moses and the Israelites. So there's nothing wrong with the situation that he's described up to this point. In fact, prophets and prophecies in the future are going to play a significant role speaking the word of God to the people of Israel. The danger doesn't appear until the end of verse 2. So if you look here at the end of verse 2, And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. So Moses says, look, prophets, they may prophesy, dreamers may dream, signs and wonders may be performed, predictions may even come true. However, the primary test that people were to be concerned with was the content of the message. You've heard uh, people say all the time, Satan, right, is uh, the great deceiver, the father of all lies. And here's the thing with deception. It only works if it seems real and true and legitimate. 
So if Satan wandered into your house, kids, if Satan wandered into your house and was like, hi, I'm Satan, the sworn enemy of God. Please come follow me. You'd, you'd laugh at him. You'd be like, it's so ridiculous. That's foolish. Sin rarely, if ever, enters our lives in such an obvious manner. Instead, Satan sneaks in the back door. Right? Think about the Garden of Eden and the way he just ever so gently twisted the words of God just enough to lead Adam and Eve astray. It's like so many of those online scams that you read about today. I'm not talking about the Nigerian princes offering you millions of dollars. I'm talking about the much more insidious uh, uh, phishing and, and social engineering scams that make it look like the email is coming from your coworker or trusted friend, someone who you wouldn't think twice about believing. And back in our passage, as you already noticed, the, 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 the punishment for such deceit was death, plain and simple. Now, why such an extreme punishment? Well, Moses explains right here in the text, if you look at the second half of verse 5, death is the only punishment for someone who teaches rebellion against the Lord. It's the Lord, Moses reminds me, it's the Lord who rescued and redeemed and restored his people. And the only appropriate response to that gracious act of salvation by the Lord is to love and serve the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you've heard uh, Moses preach repeatedly on this over the last 12 chapters. The sin described here is a violation of the first commandment to have no other gods. It's the singular crime for which there can be no mercy. So that's all well and good, but we're not Israelites. America is not the promised land. We're not supposed to go around executing people who worship false gods and idols. So how do we apply this passage to our lives today? Well, I think verse 4 has, uh, helps us out here. This reminder of a, of a kind of wholehearted, fully-orbed devotion to God and dedication to God. And it's in light of this command that Moses then ends with verse 5, Therefore you shall purge the evil from your midst. So for us in our context, you are, we are bombarded with dozens of different voices speaking into our lives every single day on social media, blog posts, uh, podcasts, on the radio, email, uh, in the car, friends, among family, TV, movies, uh, text threads, group me at school, from people on your sports teams, wherever it is. We rarely, if ever, today get a moment of silence where someone Somewhere isn't clamoring for our attention, trying to convince us concerning their point of view. And it's in the middle of all that noise that we have to somehow find a way to pursue Christ, to, to Him you shall serve, Him you shall worship, Him you shall fear. In His ways you shall walk. Setting aside every hindrance, drowning out the dissonance, trying to walk in His ways. 
presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, not letting the world conform us to its shape and form, but being transformed instead by the Lord and the work of His Holy Spirit. So something doesn't have to be morally repugnant and obviously satanic in order for Satan to use it to draw us away from God. In fact, the temptations will often be far more subtle and appealing. Uh, When I first became a Christian, I was commuting every day to a job uh, in downtown Chicago, and I would listen in the car obsessively to one of these talk radio stations, one of the AM channels, every day, both ways. And I found myself getting increasingly angrier and angrier and angrier and more and more irritated. And then one day I realized this show is shaping my thoughts and opinions as a conservative, but completely leaving out the gospel in the process. I'm slowly giving my heart over to a way of life that has the appearance of godliness, but without Christ. And so I stopped listening. Now, the show itself was not evil, right? But the lie was far more deceptive. There was no R-rated material in there, but my heart was being increasingly led astray to, to worship a form of ethical religion that completely skipped over the gospel. This was something that, that for me in that moment was keeping me from truly holding fast to the Lord. Now, everyone's experience will be different, but I personally found in that situation I could no longer, in good conscience, listen to that show. And so as we consider the challenge here, what are some voices that you listen to most readily and eagerly during the week, and how are they shaping and forming your heart? Are they helping you to to cling tightly to Jesus? Or are they leading you down a different path? Now, our second warning is this, based from our passage today. Stay alert for the presence of sin. So look with me again at Deuteronomy 13, starting in verse 6. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or your wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known. Some of the gods are the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. This is heavy stuff. In this second scenario, the stakes have been raised quite significantly. The the hypothetical situation Moses describes here is almost too awful to imagine. He's talking about betrayal by those closest to you, 
members of your own family, your, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, even your best and closest friend. Look at the intense language that Moses uses in verses 8 and 9. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. You know this, right? The temptation to cover up or to hide such treachery would be enormous. The desire to avoid anyone finding out would be so strong. The threat of public embarrassment would be significant. But Moses is clear. If this person is attempting to actively lead you astray, then their crime can only be dealt with in one way, and that's death. Now, to put this in a somewhat more contemporary setting, let me share with you a a story of treachery and treason from from World War II. This is actually a story about a man named John Amory. Although he was born and raised in England, after the war broke out, he found himself in Europe and quickly became enamored with the fascists. During this time, he developed a vision for the formation of a special unit that would serve as part of the German SS called the British Free Corps. Now, he gave his unit that name because his plan was to recruit, this is awful, to recruit as many British soldiers as possible from within the German prisoner of war camps and to convince them to betray their own country by fighting for the Nazis. Now, he, didn't, he wasn't sneaking around trying to sort of get people to be spies or anything like that. This was all out in the open. They had propaganda and radio shows and pamphlets, and he would go quite openly into the prisoner of war camps, try and lure people into this twisted way of thinking. Although the, the unit itself never got very large, maybe only about 50 people ended up joining him. Don't think that that was not a significant number. The stakes during World War II were incredibly high, and every lie, every act of deception, every single act of treason was a nightmare that could have untold consequences for hundreds of thousands of other people. Now, John Amory was eventually captured, arrested before the end of the war, brought to England, charged with treason, And at his trial in London, he pled guilty to all charges against him. And I want to read to you what the judge, Justice uh, Humphreys, had to say during the final sentencing in November. He said, John Amory, I have read the depositions and the exhibits in this case, and I am satisfied that you knew what you did, and that you did it intentionally and deliberately, after you had received warning from more than one of your fellow countrymen that the course you were pursuing amounted to high treason. They called you a traitor, and you heard them. But in spite of that, you continued in that course. You now stand a self-confessed traitor to your king and country, and you have forfeited your right to live. He was sentenced to death, and two weeks later, he was hanged. 
But it doesn't end there because what makes this story even more heartbreaking is that his father, Leo Amory, was a noted British politician who is best known for his scathing critique of Neville Chamberlain and his policy of appeasement towards Hitler. So many historians believe that that this traitor's father was a politician who perhaps was most responsible for ensuring that Winston Churchill came to power in England. So it wasn't just that John Amory worked so eagerly, openly, and defiantly to sabotage his own country, but that he did so in such direct and open defiance of his own family's most deeply held beliefs, undermining his own father's attempts to stop the growing threat posed by Nazi Germany. And his public trial then and his public execution were meant to strike fear into the hearts of anyone who would even consider doing something similar. So I think that's, kind of, that, that, that's what we're talking about here in, in chapter 13. So that's why Moses says, verse 11, this punishment of death by stoning was so that all Israel would hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this amongst you. The purpose of such an extreme punishment was to serve as a powerful warning and deterrent to anyone even toying with apostasy, both for them and for us still today. Look, Moses raises the really uncomfortable idea that the people closest to you may in fact one day turn against you and try to lead you away from God. A horrifying thought to consider. But imagine the people of Israel, they're standing around on the plane, about to enter the promised land, looking at each other like, like really? Like, like my son, my daughter, my, my best friend? Surely that couldn't happen. And yet you heard Antony reading from 2 Kings chapter 17 before this sermon. That is exactly what happened. And in that passage, great detail, all the evil and the wickedness that they quickly embraced. And this is the reality of sin. It can take root anywhere. Nobody is immune. Churches aren't special places where there's no sin, right? We may be saved, but until we're glorified, we will face untold temptations of varying degrees of intensity and severity. At the same time, this doesn't mean that we should just sort of slip into a sort of cynical outlook, suspicious of everyone and everything all the time. Moses isn't talking about uh, snooping, spying, living in some kind of crazy surveillance state. Families, households, communities, churches can only function if there's some kind of base level of trust, an assumption of honesty and transparency, not perfection, of course, but openness and repentance and forgiveness. Moses is not calling for a a sort of a police state that monitors everything and everyone all the time that would destroy community. He's talking about willful, open, ongoing, direct attempts to woo people away 
from faith in God. But the extreme scenario here should alert us to keep on our toes, to stay alert to the ever-present and deceitful reality of sin, not just out there in the world, not just in other people, but in our own hearts as well. Well, a third warning today is a little bit different than the others, but uh, I'll explain it as we get in here. And it's simply this. The warning is this. Doctrine matters. What you believe really matters. Now, the pattern we've already seen in this chapter is repeated in the last section, starting in verse 12. I won't read the whole thing, but there's a twist here. Moses is not talking about false prophets and dreamers. He's not talking about family members. The scope has, has expanded beyond the immediate locale and it, to include people living in other towns further away. Right? Although Israel's tiny compared to America, it was still large enough for the people to be living several days' journey away from each other. So there's a problem, right? Like what were you supposed to do if if you hear about a town where everything Moses has described in verses 1 through 11 isn't happening, right? Where the false prophets preach and they're not condemned, where family members lead others astray and they're not called to account. And as a result, idolatry is running rampant. Then what? I mean, shouldn't someone intervene? And if so, how and when and what would that look like? Like As we're reading through this passage we may get bored by the repetition, okay? They've, idolatry, kill them. Idolatry, kill them. Idolatry, kill them. But Moses is addressing very real and specific situations in the lives of the people as they enter the promised land. The nuts and bolts of their lives. So he gives them clear directions. Look at verse 13. If you hear that certain worthless fellows have led the people astray. You, you can't just condemn the city on the basis of rumor or hearsay. You actually have to go there yourself. And as he says in verse 14, inquire and make search and ask diligently. God's people are to be fair and impartial and just. Careful inquiry had to be made before action was taken. But if they did discover that the town had slipped into idolatry, then the entire city had to be destroyed and never built again. These are grievous crimes with horrifying punishments. But this is where the doctrine component comes in, because what you believe about God will determine not just how you interact with this passage, but also how seriously you take your own faith, how you interact with God's work in the world around you. So along those lines, I, I propose that such a harsh punishment for this town is an excellent example of the consistency, the impartiality, and the righteousness of God. So first, such a punishment shows that God is consistent because the punishment is always the same for idolatry. There's a simple choice that God continually sets before his people. It's either me or it's them, because you can't have both. 
consistent in the Bible from the very beginning to the very end, right? Listen to me or listen to the snake and die. Join Noah and the ark and live or incline your heart to evil and die in the flood. Remain faithful to the covenant and enjoy peace and rest in the promised land or commit spiritual adultery and die. Follow Jesus and experience new life or continue in sin and die. Are you a sheep or a goat, wheat or tares, narrow uh, gate or wide path? And by the time you get to Revelation, you see the lines drawn even more severely, right? Worship the beasts and suffer the eternal consequences. Or worship the Lord and dwell with him forever. So the severe punishments in this chapter, they're not outliers. They're not oddities. Like, what in the world is God doing here? This sounds so horrible. It is horrifying but it is entirely consistent with the message of the Bible and God's work in history. Now, secondly, such a punishment shows that God is impartial because the same punishment applies to all nations. The description here in verses 15 through 17 is exactly the same treatment that God commands uh, the Israelites to, to do towards the Canaanites. The same rules apply across the board. The Israelites may be God's chosen people, but when it comes to judgment, God shows no favoritism. Remember, we talked about it a few weeks ago. He is impartial. He doesn't lower his standards. Oh, well, these are my people, so I'm going to lower the standards over here. God judges all people everywhere by the same rules, the same laws, the same standard. And his willingness here to punish his own people proves this. Now third, I said God is righteous because there can be no place for false worship in his presence. To do anything less would reduce his holiness as if that was even possible. Remember how last week we talked a lot about uh, God designating a specific place where the people would come and worship him. A part of that was uh, the focus was on God's ownership of his people. Like, these people are mine. So if this land was to be God's place, possessed by God's people, then there could be no room for false gods or idols in such a place. Unrighteous people cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. So the punishment of death may seem extreme to us, but it's entirely consistent with who God is. The punishment isn't arbitrary, it isn't excessive, it's consistent, impartial, and a reflection of God's justice and righteousness. But it's also a reminder, uh, I'm sorry, so we have a negative example here of a town that has lost sight of this importance of doctrine, right? Where the people have lost any kind of shared commitment to the central tenets of their faith. I'm not even talking about like second or third level issues, Monotheism is pretty much the central uh, doctrine in Christianity, right? 
It's a reminder that we should regularly and consistently teach and train doctrine in our homes and our churches as a way to guard against such unorthodox beliefs creeping into our communities. We need to be reading theology, learning how to study God's Word more deeply, pouring over historic catechisms and and creeds, wrestling with the thornier issues in theology. Not so that we can just boost our intellectual ego, but so that we can draw nearer to God to help us think more clearly and more carefully about our Lord and Savior, and in the process to hopefully protect against the infiltration of false doctrines. Now, it's impossible to do this perfectly. Of course, God-fearing Christians are going to land in slightly different places on, uh, on certain doctrines. We should be careful to guard against spiritual pride and unnecessary division. But I would rather see us struggle to work through those differences and wrestle with those challenges than just give in to some kind of bland, generic faith that allows everyone to just kind of get along and, and does so by erasing any kind of theological distinctives in the process. That's why we have a resource table over here every week. with books to help equip you and your family to think deeply and clearly about God, about doctrine, about theology, because it matters. That's why we have uh, the GFC Institute, our Sunday school program, every Sunday morning in that back room before the service, because we want to help you, we want to equip you to think deeply and consistently and carefully about God's Word and about doctrine and theology. That's why uh, uh, we, 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 um, we, what we're doing in, in Sand in our high school ministry, teaching and training and discipling our, our young people to think deeply and carefully about God and about their worldview. Let's press into this as a church because doctrine really matters. So as we finish here, I, just one quick word of encouragement. This is a bleak passage that seems to only be about punishment and death. But in a way, when you think of it as like a, a, a frame, right? it's like a frame that makes the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ shine so much more brightly than normal. Right? Because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have all failed to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Before Jesus turned our lives around, we lived as enemies of God. And in that sense, we deserved the same consistent, impartial, righteous judgment of God. And this is the amazing truth that Jesus died to pay the penalty that's laid out so clearly for us in this chapter, that death for those who oppose God. He died for each and every one of us. 
He died in our place so that we could be set free to walk with God in newness of life. And may that lead us to praise and adoration of our great Lord and Savior this week. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so thankful for this gift of new life, Lord, this sacrifice, this, this penalty of death that hung over us all before we knew to you, before we came to faith in you, before you raised us to new life, Lord. We stood condemned, and yet you came and bore that penalty on our behalf, setting us free. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live wholeheartedly for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen.